This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. The law, in fact, has been used time and time again to suppress people who are not deemed as equals, seen as in, they're seen as inferior and seen as worthy of degradation. It's what is at the heart of white supremacy and privilege, wherever it raises its ugly head. However, there's a kind of supremacy, a system that structurally enforces fictionalized differences among humans that predates white supremacy. Instead of a focus on racism against people of color, this earlier concept, this earlier form, invoked anti-Semitism against those who practice Judaism. Once Christianity attained political power during the time of Augustine in the 5th century, the Jewish people were no longer the chosen people. The Christians had taken their place in that role and displaced them among the religious and social hierarchy. By the time Western European nations began engaging in colonialism and imperialism, this Christian supremacy was applied to the new peoples it had confronted, and it became racialized. Which brings us to today in the white Christian supremacy that is both anti-Semitic and anti-black in its nature. We will learn what it means for our understanding of white supremacy when we consider its roots in Christian supremacy and the link between anti-Semitism and anti-black racism. In a few minutes when we speak with historian Magda Teeter, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism, we want to thank listener Tom G. for suggesting Magda, and thanks to all of our listeners who participated in a poll that we did back in March where we asked people which guests they would most like to have on the show, and Magda was the leading vote-getter. Magda is professor of history and the Schwidler Chair in Judaic Studies at Fordham University. She is author of the National Book Award-winning Blood Libel on the Trail of an Anti-Semitic Myth, her earlier work includes Sinners on Trial, Jews and Sacrilege After the Reformation, and Jews and Heretics in Catholic Poland. Magda served as a consultant for the Poland Museum of Jewish History in Warsaw. She served as the co-editor of the AJS Review and in 2015-2017 as the vice president for publications for the Association for Jewish Studies. She is currently the president of the American Academy for Jewish Research. Magda has received fellowships, including from the John Simon Guggenheim and Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundations, and was Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. You can find out more about Magda at thebloodlibeltrail.org and follow Magda on Twitter at Magda Teeter, that's T-E-T-E-R producing is Will Ippen. Will, how have you been? Anything new about you, sir? Uh, same old, nothing really new to report. I've just been enjoying the spring weather and been hard at work other than that. It's been fantastic. Uh, the weather's been absolutely great. I'm uh, Enjoyed my very slight, unscheduled break from the show. Nice. And uh, now the printer's freaking out. So we got that. It's always something. It's, right now, it's still printing. 
today's script. I believe this is the seventh copy it's on right now, so I think I'm going to just about to shoot that printer. Hey, practice makes perfect. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure after a little practice, that printer will be perfect again. So the person who I've been in a very committed, long-term, unmarried, cohabiting relationship with, she and her sister really wanted to do a kind of pilgrimage to Lake Michigan for a weekend because they spent a lot of time there when they were kids. And I not only forgot about all of that, but kept repeating, repeatedly forgetting about the entire idea of going and visiting Lake Michigan for months. So they decided we should hang out together halfway between where her sister and her family lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, while we obviously live here in Chicago, Illinois. The place they determined to be approximately halfway between is a town called Saugatuck, Michigan, which is on Lake Michigan's southwest coast. And last weekend they got a rental and we spent four days hiking through sandy pine, oak, maple, and birch forest up and down hills and over tall dunes with steep drops to the beach where we froze our sore feet in the lake in preparation for the long hike back. It was all quite idyllic. And for a brief moment, I even forgot this is hell, but something happened that reminded me, in fact, that yes, this is hell, and I'll share that with you following our talk with Magda. But more important than whatever it is that made me realize that, yes, this is hell. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, why don't people like you? (laughs) Why don't people like you? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can send it uh, via email at thisishellradio at gmail.com. Again, our Facebook page is facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And our Twitter handle is at thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing... This week's winner of the question from hell, following a Jeff, following Jeff Dorchin in a moment of truth. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Special thanks this week goes out to listener Jan C., who was very kind in her appreciation for This Is Hell and the work uh, all the people here who work on the show do. So thank you very much, Jan. We appreciate it. Will, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff joins the circus from the comfort of his apartment. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> so, it's Hangover Cure time, even though it's on a Wednesday. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a fancy salmon dish. Continuing our series of Hangover Cures featured in very untrustworthy British media outlets, The Telegraph posted an article headlined, Three Healthy Meals to Eat away your, eat your Way Out of Your Hangover. In the story by Sam Rice, one of the suggestions is power up with protein. Hmm, Sam Rice saying power up with yeah, protein. I've got suspicions right about there. that last name. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Rice writes, alcohol increases the body's production of cytokines, proteins that at healthy levels support the immune system, but in excess can cause damaging inflammation. Researchers found that eating omega-3 rich oily fish can reduce this inflammation. As an added bonus, the protein and healthy fats found in salmon, mackerel, herring, and sardines will help curb your appetite and put a stop to unhealthy cravings. Rice then recommends that we try this easy way to spice up a piece of salmon. Mix the juice of half a lemon 
with a pinch of each of chili powder, cumin, coriander, and paprika. Rub the mixture over the salmon filet, wrap it in foil, and bake it in the oven for 15 minutes at 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 160 to 180 degrees Celsius. Serve with some wilted spinach or lightly cooked broccoli and a whole grain rice, and it should it should see off that hangover for good. That makes this week's hangover cure: salmon with spinach or broccoli and rice. Yeah, when I'm hungover, you know what I want to do? Cook up a huge fancy salmon dish. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm gonna be a- be able to accurately do that, or actually get through the cooking without right getting ill. And which it'll is- be lost on you too. I'll completely lost. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Complete waste. So we have a scheduling reminder. Every week, the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell happens on our home station. Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. NUR has been airing our show since 1996 every Saturday morning when they play all four hours of every week's shows. We also stream live every Monday through Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com as we are right now. And we are podcast shortly after the same place, thisishell.com. However, due to my long weekend, again, much needed long vacation as I prepare for one final surgery in my year-long medical ordeal, and the fact that this week, due to one producer being ill and another away for a family emergency and nobody else being available at the very last minute, we had to reschedule our interview with economic historian Trevor Jackson, who was going to be on to discuss his uh, new writing at The Baffler on the real problem with capitalism and climate change being the complete waste of needless overproduction. So we're only able to do one show this week, the show you're listening to right now, instead of the three that we normally do, in order to fulfill our four-hour commitment to both Chicago's WNUR and the UK's Beware the Radio. We are completing those four hours by playing two interviews from a year ago. The first two I did after returning to the show from last spring and summer surgeries that saved my life as I was given only a 60-40 chance at survival. So... Those interviews we are going to be playing this week on WNUR include our May 16th, 2022 conversation. You'll also be able to hear these on Beware the Radio, by the way. Our May 16th, 2022 conversation with Alexander Zaitchik, author of Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19. And the following interview we did after I came back from surgery our May 24th, 2022 conversation with writer, activist, and co-founder of the Los Angeles Tenants Collective, Tracy Rosenthal, who was on to talk about a New Republic article inside LA's homeless industrial complex. Now, next week, we're also taking off Monday because it's Memorial Day. So we're taking off Monday, May 29th. That also means that on WNUR and Beware, we will again be playing an interview, a single interview from our archives to fill the four hours. We take off Monday, uh, Memorial Day, every year as it is the unofficial beginning of summer here in the States and our staff needs the break. So on NUR and Beware next week, we will be playing our May 25th, 2022 conversation with anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the Noema magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. Sustainability efforts are scaling and speeding up, but the treadmill of global economic growth is still faster. That talk with Dominic was originally scheduled for the day I was rushed to the emergency room. It was the third interview I conducted after returning from my many, many operations a year ago. 
We figured many of you have uh, may have missed our first shows back after I was hospitalized for two and a half months. And those three interviews on Monopoly Medicine, the Homeless Industrial Complex, and Degrowth are definitely worth a listen, if not a re-listen. So this week on NUR and Beware, we are playing the first two interviews we featured on the show after I returned from surgery a year ago. And then during Memorial Day week here in the States, we will be filling our four hours on NUR and uh, Beware with the third interview we did after my return a year ago in case you missed any of those conversations. Finally, we have rescheduled Trevor Jackson for our next Monday show on Monday, June 5th. Trevor will not only be on to talk about his baffler writing on capitalism's overproduction and waste causing climate change, but he will also be on to discuss his newest writing at the New York Review of Books, The Price of Crypto. Despite its boosters, frequent references to to democracy and freedom, cryptocurrency reflects a radical marketization of politics in which major players can rewrite the rules as needed. That's right. Crypto wasn't just a scam verging on a Ponzi scheme. It was also a political movement to undermine freedom and democracy. Coming up, Christian supremacy predates white supremacy and what that means for our understanding of both. Will has not some but all of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will be announcing this week's winner as well. We will tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, again, exclusively for Patreon patrons. We will have rotten history and share with you who will be on next week's show. And we got mail, like real mail, letters sent to us through the freaking post office. One from a listener in Portland, Maine, and the other from a listener in Jackson, Mississippi. And we'll be reading those to you following our guest. Of course, we will be wrapping up this week's show, as we do every week's show, with a moment of truth with contributor Jeff Dorchin. And again, I'll be telling you why, in the middle of my idyllic break, I realized that, yes, this is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and the great crime of religious and then racial supremacy has made a fortune for those it benefits, namely Christians and then white Christians, by subjugating first Jewish people into a life of what our guest describes as as servitude, and then applying a similar logic against all those who were not seen as white, especially black Americans, leading to their degradation that culminated in centuries of slavery. So how do we understand white supremacy differently? when we recognize its precursor in Christian supremacy? And how do we understand both anti-Semitism and anti-black racism differently when we see how they are connected? Here to help us have a better understanding of religious and racial supremacy, we are very happy to have on the show historian Magda Teeter, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism. Welcome to This is Hell, Magda. Thank you for having me, Jack. 
Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating article, and I want to thank listener Tom G. again for suggesting you as a guest, because, or article, I should say, book, uh, because this is a way in which I've never really considered white supremacy in the past, because, as you point out, people don't realize, not that Christian supremacy caused white supremacy, but the connection between the two, or that there was a Christian supremacy that predated white supremacy. You offer a 1965 James Baldwin quote at the beginning of your book. And I just want to ask this kind of general question about history. You quote him from The White Man's Guilt, a book at the beginning of your book. And uh, you cite Baldwin writing, history as nearly no one seems to know. It's not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways. And history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. So is the right-wing reactionary, supposedly anti-critical race theory, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Moms for Liberty, book banning, and especially its focus on history curriculum, is that all about control in our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations? Is it a fight over how we view ourselves, the world around us, and who that view benefits. Is it a fight over the past that will have a serious impact on the future? Because a lot of people, I mean, I, I tend to want to do this. I kind of want to just dismiss this as distractions and as culture wars. So how important is this kind of reframing of history by the far right when it comes to the way in which we view ourselves and our world? Um, that's a... You know, that's a great question, and I, I think that it is not just um, a struggle for control and control of frame of reference, but it actually is acting out those long patterns and habits of thinking that I discuss in the book. Um, and when you look at the, the kind of books, the kind of ideas that are being banned and, um, and, and considered threatening by DeSantis and by Moms for Liberty and so on and so forth, they are all, um, uh, you know, trying to, um, to create this, um, this, uh, voices or show voices um, that are not just white, that are not just male, that are not supremacists, that are inclusive, right? As I as I start the book with the um with the Charlottesville um uh, violence in 2017, um I talk about the clash of two visions of society, right? One ethno-nationalist and one uh, inclusive, multicultural, and embracing, essentially liberal democracy. And I think what we're seeing is uh, is a clash between between the two. Um, and that is a story that is longer than DeSantis is even alive, uh, but uh, but one that is coming uh, coming up and is being played out uh, across the nation. How? 
representative do you think those two combating groups at Charlottesville on August 11th and August 12th of 2017, how representative uh, were the two combating groups of the current political climate in the U.S. more generally? Were these simply extremists from the far reaches of both ends of the political spectrum, or are they, to a certain degree, indicative of where the U.S. two-party bicameral, binary, democratic system is today? Um, you know, I think that uh, a few years ago, um, maybe, you know, before 2016, 2015, I would have said what we, if, if, we, if Charlottesville had happened, I would have said, you know, that's um, that's an example of uh, of extremists, uh, you know, uh, assembling in, in, in Charlottesville and demonstrating. Now, I see differently. I think what used to be considered extreme um, and extremist views have now percolated to the top and have been um, and have been embraced by um, you know mainstream politicians and mainstream uh, media and uh, and treated as if they were um, legitimate. So what used to be not legitimate, what used to be beyond the pale of uh, political legitimacy, is now um is now um out in in the front and uh when when you can see people uh, demonstrating with nazi flags and there is no condemnation of it you know we've passed a certain boundary so as you say this is hell and uh and i think uh, we are seeing this percolate and i'll give you an example i taught um, a class on anti-semitism in the fall of 2016 and I um, showed a, a, a documentary about the sort of uh, far right extremism in the United States. And in that documentary, the filmmaker had to go and look in the what used to be called deep dark web, and in some you know small villages or or isolated places in in you know in the middle of the the country in the wilderness uh, to find these characters. Now they are some of them are in power. So I think we've crossed a certain line where uh, discourse that used to be considered extremist is now um, is now acceptable. And you point out that groups now dubbed white nationalist or white supremacist, occasionally Christian nationalist, express Christian racial populism through white domination over both non-whites and non-Christians. Their ideology articulated in the U.S. through the defense of the Confederacy and other anti-Semitic chants such as Jews will not replace us, and in Europe through anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic attacks, vociferously rejects the modern idea of equality, legal and social, between them as white Christian people on one hand and Jews and people of color on the other. So white supremacy is not only about racism. Christian nationalism is not only about anti-Semitism. Both are about white Christian domination over all others, as well as enforced inequality. But many of those who may understand or perceive themselves as white Christian nationalists also claim to be very supportive, if not admiring, of Jewish traditions, the Jewish people, and as they see it through their support of the state of Israel, that is a support of Judaism. Are these Christian supremacists, their racism, anti-Semitism, 
common within the larger white Christian nationalist movement? Are they growing? Is this always been the case with the white Christian nationalist movement, that it's always been about anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism? So I'll just say that um, support for the state of Israel and uh, appropriation of Jewish rituals does not mean um, lack of anti-Jewish prejudice or even anti-Semitism. So these are two different uh, issues. And, uh, And when you look at the language of support for Israel, it is not necessarily support for Jews. It is support for Israel for a very different reason, for a reason that is uh, internal to the, uh, especially Christian evangelicals. Um, so, uh, so one does not preclude the other. And I think that is sometimes mistaken um, or sometimes it's used as an excuse to, uh, to kind of um, veil anti-Jewish sentiments behind the support for Israel and uh, and so-called supposed uh, respect for for Judaism and Jewish practices. But when you look deeper at that, it's about their practice of uh, of uh, Christianity, their uh, appropriation of rituals as if they were the ones that Jesus practiced in his lifetime, and their um, almost um, uh, appropriation of Israel as if belonging really to them because it it, it is uh, it belongs to their vision Christological kind of vision of uh, of history and where uh, where where Israel stands in the vision for um, you know the eschatology the end of the uh, of the world so these are two different things um they uh and and they emerge from um from christian supersessionism really it's about you know replacement of judaism with the truth of christianity um and uh and uh, which has a, a long history and obviously from the early theological writings and then through uh, it also has a political history so um so um Yes, these are these are related, but one does not preclude the other. You write that until the late 18th century, European society, which includes colonies, had been organized around social estates and legal pluralism. The concept of equality before law did not exist. With the Enlightenment, ideas about equality and rights began to be debated, and following the American and French revolutions, conceptualization of what citizenship and nationhood meant started to take shape. In Europe, two dominant ideas of citizenship and nationhood emerged, one rooted in a political national identity, gradually and grudgingly included all those who inhabited a political state. The other, grounded in an ethnic or ethno-religious identity, tended to exclude people who were not considered part of a given ethnic group. Has the United States, and have most European nations, been grappling with this same question since their very beginning, whether to be a political or an ethno-religious state? Is that debate what every state always grapples with since the creation of nations beginning in the 18th, moving into the 19th century here in the United States, as well as in Western Europe? Yeah, the um, the modern tra- political transformations that came with um, certainly the French Revolution, but also to some extent with the American Revolution, 
um, uh, really challenged and upended the whole political system of the Western world, Western European and Euro-colonial uh, world that was grounded in, in different estates and different social status. So Jews would have their own status, the, you know, uh, merchant people living in cities, burghers would have their own status, serfs and, and nobility, aristocracy, and so on and so forth. The, uh, everybody would be under a different set of uh, legal rules. Uh, there was no concept of equality, and equality comes with the Enlightenment ideas of um, human rights and um, on toleration and uh, tr uh, think, rethink the, the the idea of state. And then, of course, the the famous um, uh, slogan. Uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity that the French Revolution um, uh, came came up. And the, uh, the question was then, uh, if we're all equal, who is we, right? Are, and after centuries of having, thinking about Jews in ways that they were inferior, there was a, a concept of per Jewish perpetual servitude to Christianity. There were laws that um, that prohibited Jews in certain position to have any any form of authority over Christians. So, uh, so both in law and culture, Jews were perceived as um, as uh, inferior. And then, of course, by uh, eighteen by the French Revolution, you also have decades, centuries of uh, transatlantic slave. Um, trade and enslavement of uh, of africans and and all these um thinkers are beginning to uh, are, are trying to think and justify um the enslavement of uh, of a whole you know of millions of of human beings and they come up with an idea of race and infer and racial inferiority so when uh, when you have French Revolution uh, suddenly coming with the idea of equality before law, of citizenship, citizenship is not a concept as we understand uh, now. It existed, but on a more local level within cities, and, and it was about political uh, power and political influence. Um, so when you come up with the new idea of citizenship and of a nation um, of people equal uh, before law, then uh, the question becomes we, right? So in the, in the United States, you have the idea of we the people, and that question of who is the we the people um, emerge. And in the in Europe, it is also, especially in, in France at the beginning, which has colonies, which has um, um, uh, one of the most not notorious slave colonies, which um, becomes later on Haiti, uh, but Saint-Domingue. Um, so who is we? Are Jews to be equal? Are free, even free Black people, people of color, to be equal, let alone what about the enslaved people? Um, so, um, so, so there were all these different, um, different intellectuals, different politicians who are, and it was really about the political power, right? Can Jews then uh, make decisions for us in the parliament, for us, right? So you begin to see this, um, this very conscious debate over the word, the pronoun, we. Uh, we and us and ours, and and uh, eventually the idea of the republic 
uh, in France wins and Jews are gradually admitted to equal citizenship alongside with Protestants and France is predominantly Catholic. Um, and then the colonial question sort of um, is uh, pushed aside because uh, Haiti becomes an independent uh, the independent state after the, the uh, Haitian Revolution. Um, um, but uh, but uh, in the United States, uh, soon after the the American Revolution, was slavery, by the way, is never challenged as a as an as as an idea during the uh, the um, American Revolution. But very a few years later, the idea of who can become a naturalized citizen is set in law. We have the naturalization law. Which um, which allows for the immigration naturalization of white people, free white people. So you begin to have this is the the first kind of uh, statement. The American um, Constitution and does not talk about citizenship, does not define citizenship because they're all making it up. There's no I, they don't have an idea what citizenship is. It's an idea, and they are all trying to figure out what it is. Um, so um, in, in the United States, the, the really, it takes a few decades before those questions are explicitly discussed. And that's uh, in 1820, the Missouri debate and the, the naturalization law of, uh, of 1790 is, is cited as, an, as evidence that we the people were meant to be we the white people. Um, and uh, and that excluded um, black uh, Americans, uh, not let alone enslaved people, but even uh, free black Americans. Um, so so definitely, and there were those who uh, on uh, both during the French Revolution in France and the countries that were dominated by France as 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 the ideas spread, and in the United States. There were both sides to this debate. There were those who were arguing for yes, um, we have this ideal ideal of equality, and therefore yes, it should be ex uh, extended to uh, to all these uh, all these people who others want to exclude. Um, and uh, and in in the United States similarly, and you see throughout the same voices. It almost was eerie when I was uh, reading all these primary sources. Um, from the, especially the American context, how they echo what we're, the, the two visions are, are clashing throughout these debates, 1820, then um, the uh, Dred Scott um, uh, Supreme Court, Court decision, Plessy v. Ferguson, and so on and so forth. These are, the, the framing remains uh, remains uh, remains the same, and I think we're we're fighting uh, over these two visions of what it means to be American and what it means to be equal, and who um, and who uh, crucially who remains in in power, because ultimately it is about political power. Citizenship is not just about residency; it's about political power. Who makes uh, who has the right to make those decisions? And that's a great reminder of the unforeseen questions and ideas 
that can emerge during a revolution, even decades and decades after a revolution, while it's still forming. You write that in the United States, the language and debates surrounding the status of black Americans, as you were just saying, was eerily reminiscent of that concerning Jews in Europe, with a clear distinction of the existence of de jure enslavement of black people, as opposed to only the theologically grounded idea of slavery and servitude of Jews. The question of citizenship of people of color did not garner direct attention when the Constitution was ratified, although racially el- racial eligibility was addressed again, as you pointed out, in the 1790 Naturalization Act, which limited naturalization to a free white person, in quotes. Those inscribing whiteness uh, thus inscribing uh, whiteness into the legal fabric of the country. Whiteness remained a requirement in the subsequent revisions of the law. So do the founding documents then exclude all but white people from being citizens? And if they do, what should that reveal to us, Magda? How should that guide our understanding of the founding documents and what some see as their sanctity? I think uh, what it reveals, and this is uh, this is uh, a kind of an, an an eerie thing to say, uh, but it does reveal that uh, the political founders wanted to protect um, power in the hands of white men, white Christian men. Uh, again, religion was um, was a little bit was protected by the constitution. So um, Jews are allowed to immigrate, especially European Jews are allowed to immigrate and naturalize. Um, but they there are in various states, um, uh, Maryland, one of them, um, laws that are limiting their rights, and then uh, and then Jews um, are reminded that they are not that they live in a Christian nation. So the vision was definitely that um, you you can argue that the um, the people who object today uh, to studying this this history. Um, would be the ones who were, would agree with that vision of um, of we the white people, as one of the Virginia senators um, uh, stated on on in in the debates over over citizenship and um, uh, whether black people were eligible for citizenship and whether they should be considered for citizenship. And you also have to remember that when the United States was um, Founded slavery was very much part of the uh, economic uh, system, and uh, and the it is founded on uh, the premise of compromise, uh, where the northern colonial provinces were essentially accepting the existence of uh, of of slavery uh, in order to successfully se- separate from the British Empire. Um, so these these debates over um, en- enslavement over race are very much at the at the founding of the the country, and this is something that I think we need to um, to reckon with. At the same time, there are also these ideals uh, about equality um, and uh, about. Uh, uh, freedom that one could take seriously even if the original founders did not see it as an expansive um 
part of an expansive vision for the for the country. And then, of course, there is uh, there is the uh, the second founding, as some scholars have found, after the Civil War, which uh, which does um, uh, aim to be to represent that kind of more inclusive liberal democracy that um, uh, that we're now, you know, is back at uh, debated in in both Europe and in in the United States. We are speaking with historian Magda Teeter, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism. You can find out more about her at the Blood Libel Trail. Dot org. Follow Magda on Twitter at Magda Teeter. That's T E T E R. So Magda is, you know, we we've been talking about how Christian supremacy predated white supremacy is, and and the anti-Semitism within that Christian supremacy is anti-Semitism then the root of all racism, or is that an oversimplification? Is is anti-Semitism, is racism a Christian political or even religious project? It, so it's it's not necessarily a root, right? Uh, that is uh, that is anti-black racism does not emerge directly from anti-Jewish sentiments of uh, that that are at the at the root of of, of Christian uh, identity. But what what it does, it, 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 what role it does play, is that um, that Jews played a role of contrast figures for Christians from the very beginning. Um, the Christian identity emerges from contrasting with Jews, and it's in the earliest writings, the earliest writings of uh, Paul and his epistles, where he creates a framework of values and a framework of vocabulary that that sets the sort of hierarchy of positive values, of spirituality, of faith attached to Christianity, and of carnal kind of and flesh and servitude values attached to Judaism. Law, Jewish law becomes the slur um, in, in Christian thought. Um, so you, you right at the beginning, you have the framing of Christian superiority over Jews as a as a contrast, as a rejected people, as a contrast uh, figures. Um, and that that sense of theological superiority becomes also a political superiority when the Christian uh, Roman Empire finally becomes an empire and Christians come into political power. And that theological superiority is then translated into law, singling out Jews um, for um, prohibitions to have authorities over Christians. So, for instance, Christians can own slaves, Christian and non-Christian slaves under Christian Roman um, law, but Jews cannot own Christian slaves. Again, slavery is part of the uh, the Roman Empire. It's not a racialized slavery, but it's part of the Roman Empire. So suddenly you have Jews. Yes, you can uh, Jews can own slaves who are non-Christians, but once a Christian becomes a, uh, a, a, a slave of Jews, um, he or she should be freed, and freedom is associated with Christianity. 
So, so that um, that superiority, theological and now legal and political, um, begins to create a certain habit of thinking about Christian for Christians about Christianity uh, and also about Jews. Once Christianity becomes dominant in in Europe and sh the sort of power uh, with the rise of Islam and and the push of of Christian power into uh, the center of Europe, it gradually develops the 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 um, Christians develop a European um, uh, Christian identity and. With the rise of um, of transatlantic uh, uh, col uh, colonial uh, colonial expansion and the transatlantic um, uh, African slave trade, you begin to see the um, the, uh, the the formation of not only Christian superior identity but now white European Christian. Um, uh, identity again, superior than that. That Christianity is never lost, and I'll give you an example which I discuss in the book. Uh, so visually, it is visually depicted by the symbol of of uh, ecclesia, the church, and the synagogue and uh, or or Judaism in medieval art. And the church is this, this reigning queen standing upright, holding uh, symbols of power and symbols of Christianity. And synagogue that is representing Jews in Judaism is this blindfolded, uh, humiliated, humble maiden. And they are usually paired together, and it's ubiquitous in, uh, in medieval, medieval art. By the 16th century, late 16th century, um, the symbolism of ecclesia and synagogue kind of disappears. It doesn't fully disappear, but it, it really wanes. And what emerges is Europa, Europe, as the Christian regnant queen and the synagogue, the, the Judaism is now replaced with the um, four, uh, the other continents, Africa, um, America and Asia, who are displayed in different forms of, um, of uh, being clad or unclad and, uh, and always uh, gazing down in that kind of humbled humility. The um, by the time America becomes, uh, the United States becomes uh, becomes uh, um, an independent country, America changes race into a white woman. Um, so you you can you can see it visually uh, transformed. And Africa by the 18th century is um, is racialized into as a black African. So so you can see that transformation of uh, conceptions of identity that European uh, that Christian identity is superior to Judaism and humbling uh, Jews and uh, and as as maidens and uh, and and the sort of perpetual servitude as punishment by God and then with the uh, European expansion colonial expansion you see it transformed into European white and still Christian uh, domination over the other continents. So did Christians inherit the idea of religious superiority from Judaism? Is religious superiority something that all religions embrace? Or for that matter, is contrast and opposition are those integral to not just 
religious identities, but all identities. How in t- how important is opposition to making your identity, whether that identity is one of being Christian or one defined by race? So monotheism, which emerges from Judaism, is um, by definition intolerant of other other religious expressions um, and is by definition grounded in the perception of truth. Um, And if you hold the truth to one real uh, true God, then everybody else is wrong um, in in that way. The difference, um, Christianity really... um, it develops the expansionist uh, view. That is, in the Roman Empire, pagan Roman Empire, the Romans were sort of like, whatever, you know, the people are believing, we have a number of gods, and if they have somebody else, that's fine. It was not a big deal. Uh, Jews were a problem for the pagan Rome and, and Greece as well, because they didn't want to perform certain rituals to the idols that were part of the state uh, functioning of the of the empire, empires, would but Jews perceive this is the God of Israel of uh, I, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and so on and so forth. That was a kind of a tribal God. It was it was it was a God of Israel. So it they did not necessarily have this expansionist uh, view of of trying to convert everybody to. Um, to their uh, uh, to their religious practices, and it was a cult that was uh, that was um, that was centered in Jerusalem in the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, when Christianity with Paul really Christianity becomes a universal religion, that is the the, the dramatic shift. That is, uh, Paul began to think, well, it, how can it be if there's only one God for everybody, but it's God of Israel? So he began to think uh, in, in broader terms and, and think about expanding the message to, um, to so-called Gentiles. And that's the word that is used in the, in the scriptures. Uh, and that is the the he is now embracing both the truth that this is the only truth and the only um, way of salvation, but also uh, has the expansionist idea of proselytism and conversion and, um, you know, an expansion. So Christianity really comes up with something somewhat different from Judaism, even though Judaism um, uh, you know, creates this idea of monotheism. And uh, and then, of course, once you have that idea of religious truth and acting um, to in the name of God, uh, allied with political power, you you begin to uh, to to see problems. The other thing that is important is that that there there's no other group that Christianity defines itself against. Jews are the central figures in that identity. So we can talk about Islamic supremacy uh, when Islam comes to power and as a both religion and then uh, as a caliphate with political power. Um, Islam, however, does not define itself against um, one group. 
um, it um, embraces parts of uh, of Judaism and uh, and Christianity. It argues against them. They think that they're wrong uh, on some points, um, but it uh, it doesn't deny it. Christianity denies the validity of Judaism. Um, Islam eventually says, "Okay, you guys um, don't accept our what we're claiming that and our truth and our revelation." So you are allowed to practice your your religion, uh, but you have to be humbled and the and the demi status. So they do create a hierarchy um, and supremacy, um, but again, it is not as stark as uh, it doesn't it de deny the validity of these other other practices. Whereas whereas Christianity does deny the validity of Judaism. Um, and and that that uh, superiority is based uh, is grounded in that contrast and in that thing. Whether it is everybody needs the contrast figures with it psychological, I'm not a psychologist. I'm I don't know. Um, but again, many imp empires were quote unquote tolerant in some ways because they, uh, especially the polytheistic empires, because they accepted different uh, different forms of truth and worship and. Um, and and tribal royalty loyalties to different different gods, um, so Christianity comes up with something different, and that supremacy and superiority and supersessionism um, is uh, is uh, about the domination, and it's about conversion and domination to that truth, and that's what we're seeing here po politically as well. And in 2023 in the United States uh, with the book bans, with the erasure of certain kinds of history and uh, and also um, imposition of, of beliefs through law um, on the, the rest of the country. And you write that the concepts of servitude and slavery with which the idea of Christian domination is tightly connected help illuminate the roots of the obstinate objections to Jewish and black social and political equality the anxiety about black and Jewish presence within white Christian society, and fear of their power. Jewish power everywhere around the world, and specifically in America, also black power, or as it was known in the 19th and early 20th century, the Negro rule. How dependent is supremacy and superiority, the belief that you are better than others, how dependent is that on fear of the other? How important is fear of whoever the other is to white Christian supremacy? It is dependent on fear, but it is dependent on fear of loss of power. So the idea of Jewish power, which is such a uh, ubiquitous anti-Semitic trope everywhere on the left and on the right, is, uh, is a product of modern times. Uh, it's a product of the moment where um, the Jews who were supposed to be inferior in an inferior legal and social position are gaining political um, power by being equal citizens. It's not that they are gaining special power, uh, but they are becoming uh, visible in places and can enter places where, from which they were excluded. They can be... Um, elected officials, they can be judges, they can be professors at universities. Um, they uh, so, so they are suddenly visible as any citizen might be in uh, positions where they were not. 
So there is a sense of Jews have too much power, they've gained power, and that is a product of citizenship and equality. Um, and the same idea of, uh, uh, of, of Black or, or Negro rule emerges from um, the reconstruction. That is, again, from the moment when uh, Black Americans were able to be, at least according to law, um, be seen as equal citizens and be elected to offices across the, the country um, to be seen in positions of political power. And that is uh, that is what became, came to be threatening. And in both cases, you have this tremendous backlash against both Jewish and Black equality. Uh, in Europe, um, it emerges in the form of political and racial anti-Semitism, virulent uh, anti-Semitism, sometimes uh, violent as well. And in the United States, it emerges in the in the uh, in the form of the various so-called Jim Crow uh, laws and uh, and efforts to disenfranchise uh, Black Americans and again put them back in that position of unequal um, now second-class citizens because now at least they're recognized as citizens um, in in the country. So the the idea of power and rule emerges from that political transformation that at least in theory allows for black people in the United States and Jews in Europe become equal before the law with that of the of the Christians. And again, those centuries of um, Christian uh, power and domination that were uh, a white Christian power and domination in the colonies, um, you you begin to see this fear and discomfort, fear again of losing the grip of, of power. And I think, again, in terms of thinking what is happening now today, the sense of uh, the unleashing of that backlash to uh, Barack Obama presidency, um, the uh, unleashing of all that when, when we begin to see um, diverse group of of Americans in positions where they previously were not, um, you that that's what's what's causing this uh, this this backlash that we're we're seeing. It's the sort of trying to hold on to the grip of power. So is this unfair legal system what Christian supremacists employ yet deny employing the most that they? have built a legal system that employs laws and structures which are unjust, unequal, unfair, but benefit Christian supremacists, white Christian supremacists above all others, yet they also deny such a system exists. And the only reason white Christians benefit from the system we have is because, well, they're superior. Is the law the foundation of the structure? And that's why structuralism of an unequal system is so fiercely denied by white Christian supremacists. I, yeah, I think law is very important. I think in many of the discussions uh, about uh, whether anti-Semitism, racism, and also in the in the defensiveness of the um, some of the um, the current uh, people on the right, is the idea that it's all about a hatred. Oh, you mean I hate? I don't hate, you know, black people. I don't hate Jews. And 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 so so these discussions about anti-Semitism and racism have often been framed a, a, a long uh, 
uh, around questions of hatred, with the exception of, again, the critical race theory, which emerges from legal um, scholarship on race in the United States, that, that focuses specifically on the way law functions to um, uh, to uh, protect and affirm uh, white uh, supremacy or, or, or sort of racial hierarchy of, of of power, and what I what I do in the book is I saw I I I I show this interplay between uh, culture, theology, and law that goes um goes far deeper. That it is not just just about um you know some theologians or or writers espousing uh, these um ideas of superiority it is that they become embedded in law and law um uh, makes it makes it real makes it real for people to see well you shouldn't be in this position the law says you shouldn't be in this position and gives the sort of tools of justification of exclusion um so absolutely law is crucial and law um was uh a, a product again until the, the 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 French Revolution of Christian supremacy of a structuring a certain hierarchy religious and racial hierarchy in in Europe and European colonies, and then uh, and then it becomes challenged with the ideals of modern citizenship and equality and uh, ever since we are in that in that struggle over these different visions and and challenges to the law those who want to uh deploy the law uh, as as uh, promoting equal citizenship and those who are defending these structures that had had been in place for so long so to what extent does white christian supremacy in the United States in particular, exist because it is protected, empowered, and imposed by the law, even favored by the law. Does white Christian supremacy exist in the United States because the law protects it? So, the, again, I'm not an American scholar, and I should have said it at the beginning. I come from <laughs> from Jewish studies, and I'm a historian, and I uh, and I come I'm from the European context, and I look at the American system with that scholarly outside lens, uh, and that's why I'm begin. I, I was able to see some of these uh, uncanny parallels between ideas about Jews and and um, Black Americans in this in this country i think the the law again certainly after um uh, after the civil war and then after the civil rights um, movement with the civil rights act and so on and so forth um was meant to erase that supremacy but in the united states yes white supremacy again christianity is a little bit tricky because religion is a protected category by the constitution so there's much more of a cultural christian um supremacy than legal christian supremacy um uh, in in the united states and uh, in, in europe again that's a different story various constitutions affirm christian uh, roots and christian values in their constitutions so there is that and that that 
is was challenged and and these these major points in in legal transformations of the United States challenged that white um, supremacy. And I use the word supremacy, I should say, in the book, not in that sa same way that is often popularly used to sort of just, you know, point out to skinheads and 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 as white supremacists. I use it in a legal sense that supremacy means political power. Um, so that that is yes. So these laws were at the heart of it, and that they were a Christian, a white supremacy in the United States, and um, and Christian supremacy in Europe, and that are that were challenged. And the the what is what is happening now with the backlash that we're seeing, and that we we saw the backlash to the civil rights era, and then um, now after Barack Obama. Um, became president um with the is trying to undo those laws right we see the um various lawsuits um trying to use the idea of rights religious rights to undermine essentially the civil rights era uh legislation that aimed to be uh, to promote equality for 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 all um and it is it is it is part of that backlash it is part of that backlash um with the same cultural forces that were a backlash against um the reconstruction and um and yes it is a backlash against the the legislation and the law that aims to promote the vision of the country an inclusive multicultural vision of the country um uh, while they are feeling you know, threatened by it and by um, by the country's history. We have been speaking with historian Magda Teeter, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism. You can find out more about her at thebloodlibeltrail.org. Follow Magda on Twitter at Magda Teeter. That's T-E-T-E-R. One last question for you, Magda, and I promise we do this with every one of our guests. Our final question appropriately for this conversation is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And again, I think that's where your answer is going to fall here, but I don't know how you're going to answer it. This is a, I'm kind of happy about this question. You write, in 1820, following the admission of the territory of Missouri to the Union, a debate erupted in the Congress over a clause in the Missouri Constitution prohibiting free people of color from settling in Missouri in perpetuity, raising questions about potential restrictions of the rights of citizens of other states. The defenders of that clause claimed, as did Philip Har Ar uh, sorry, Barber of Virginia, who you quoted earlier in our conversation, that the con Constitution of the United States was framed by the states respectively, consisting of the European descendants of white men that have view to the liberty and rights of white men. The Missouri debate exposed the lasting fissures around race and black people's belonging, as well as sharp differences over the question as to who was, as we were discussing earlier, included in the phrase, we the people. It revealed what 20th century political theorist Judith Schlar called enduring anti-liberal dispositions that have regularly asserted themselves, often very successfully, against the promise of equal political rights contained in the Declaration of Independence 
and its successors. But my question from hell for you, Magda, is how much was that founding or was that promise made when founding documents also state that rights are only for white men? Are equal rights a promise unfulfilled, or were they a promise that was never really made, that was immediately rescinded in its writing? No, I think you're right. I think um, I think the uh, the ideal was there, but it was not an ideal that was intended for everyone. And the um, the frightening uh, answer to your question from hell is that if we were textualists and wanted to apply the um, the letter of the documents of the found and the vision of the founding documents, uh, we would end up with white, perhaps Christian supremacy. Um, what we are um, you know, uh, debating right now in the country and and standing up to is the and standing up for is the other vision that was only articulated in the ideal that was only later on after the the civil war um, and even maybe not then uh, maybe only after the civil rights era expanded to be that kind of inclusive uh, liberal democracy that we would that many of us would like to to see um so yeah it's it's a it's a very um very hard question and a hard truth i think to face uh, because uh it could be used in in ways that are are unpleasant and would be unpleasant for for so many millions of us. Magda, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, our guest has been Magda Teeter, historian, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Antisemitism and Racism. Find out more about her at the Blood Libel trail.org check out all of her past writing including blood libel which is her national book award winning uh, work and follow magda on twitter at magda teeter thank you so much for being on the show this has been a fascinating conversation and i really appreciate you being on with us thank you so much for having me all right take, take care take care Bye. and on this memorial day weekend as we go into this memorial day weekend i would like to remind you what magda just said the founding documents of the United States all are white Christian supremacist documents. And if we followed them to the letter of the law, we would be the white supremacist nation that the far right wants us to be. Happy Memorial Day, everybody. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because nobody's talking about how white Christian supremacy or, sorry, how Christian uh, supremacy predates and informs white supremacy coming together in the anti-Semitic and anti-black U.S. version of white Christian supremacy and the founding documents being basically framed around that white Christian supremacy. If that talk we just had with Magda is a reminder that you cannot and will not hear a discussion like that anywhere else and that this is hell show your appreciation for this is hell providing nearly 27 years of content that you definitely cannot get 
anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you can't hear anywhere else and providing the content to you absolutely free, including nearly 10 years of shows that you can find right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that and that it's always been free by becoming, by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On our most recent Thursday, May 18th Patreon podcast, white dudes on the show are getting me down. And there's something about white dudes when they report on the reality of our hellish landscape that makes it even more depressing. And I tried to figure it out why during the monologue on Patreon last week. Because Quinn Slobodian, Christopher Ketchum, Ashley Dawson, Matt Kennard, and Gabriel Wynon have really bummed me out lately on the show, but in a good way, in that they have made me also have a clearer understanding of just how screwed up everything really is. Also on Patreon, because Matt Kennard brought up the 2003 book The Corporation by Joel Bacon, while we did not have Joel on the show, we did have documentarian Jennifer Abbott on to discuss her award-winning film adaptation of that book, a a documentary titled The Corporation. The film features many past guests here on the show, seven-time guest Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein, Michael Moore, several-time guest Maude Barlow, Robert Weissman, Vandana Shiva, I think Howard Zinn was on at least seven times, and many others who have appeared on the show. The film, like the book, and like Matt and Claire Provost's book, which we discussed last week, Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrow Democracy, is about the rise of power of corporations and their history, which has led to their global dominance. It's essentially, you know, the, the book, The Corporation, and the film. They're essentially Matt and Claire's book, minus the past 20 years of continuously growing corporate power. And, as you all know, it just keeps getting worse. Imagine where we will be in 20 years if this corporate coup of democracy is allowed to continue. Well, you don't have to imagine, because by listening to our featured interview on Patreon with Jennifer, and then hearing our talk from last week's show with Matt and Claire, you can go back 20 years to learn how bad corporate power already was, and then fast forward to last week and discover how much worse it has become, and then... Do your own extrapolation and figure out how much how bad it will be in 20 years from now. But wait, there's more. On this week's Patreon podcast, the question from hell this week, why don't people like you, really got me thinking, and not in a good way. If there is a person who does not like me, and come on, it's me. I seriously doubt there is. But why wouldn't they? I mean, I don't like me. And I'll share why... On Patreon, people don't like me, as well as why I don't want certain people to like me. I mean, give you reasons why you shouldn't like me, which are the same reason I'm not crazy about me either. But we also got a question from hell from a Patreon patron for me. It's a new feature on Patreon, where every week I answer a listener's question from hell for me, which I have no knowledge of until Will asks it. That question from hell uh, was from listener Neil C., And he asked, what are your guilty pleasures? 
And there's that's the thing. The reasons you should not like me and I don't like myself turns out to be my guilty pleasures. Which makes sense as guilt is I'm not fond of me. That's one of the reasons I'm really not happy about myself. All the guilt I have bottled up inside. After all, I was raised Catholic. Also on this week's This Is Hell, Jeff Dorchin, who does The Moment of Truth, he got us in contact with somebody who has a new book out that is endorsed by musician Brian Eno. Eno says of this new book, stunning, marks the emergence of a new and genuinely stunning kind of realism. So the book is called I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. The author, Andrew Boyd, a name that sounded familiar to me, even had a copy of the book sent to the studio. But we missed out on the whole thing. That's when I was back down in the vault, where we keep the archives. And I was looking for something to play this week on Patreon, keeping in mind that Jeff had said I should probably have Andrew Boyd on the show, and then we blew the possibility of having him on the show a couple months ago. So I'm sitting down there in the vault, and there, right there on the floor, right by my feet, was a July 19th, 2000 interview with the very same Andrew Boyd, whose website at the time was wanderbody.com, which is an anagram for Andrew Boyd. But he apparently abandoned that site years ago. At the time of our conversation, a little less than 20 years ago, Andrew was a lecturer at New York University, was co-chair of Billionaires for Bush or Gore, and the author of the books The Activist Cookbook and Daily Afflictions. He was on our show to discuss his then-just-posted story in 2003 at The Nation called The Web Rewires the Movement. Andrew gave us an update of the current state of the global justice movement at the time, or whatever they were calling it back then. But you can only hear my issues with white dudes and learn all about the frightening power of corporations, that frightening power they had 20 years ago, which has only expanded since then. So you know it's a hell of a lot worse now. And hear me go on about not liking me and why you shouldn't, and a talk on the state of the global justice movie, also from movement, sorry, also from 20 years ago, by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday morning at 10 Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. You also get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as a Patreon patron, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Check out all of the perks for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding on Patreon and on Discord. This week's question from Hell is, why don't people like you? And uh, on Patreon, Chris C. responding, I relentlessly strip away their false hopes, misplaced faith in our leaders, and the delusional belief that we can save society from global catastrophe. In short, I keep telling them that this is hell. Yeah, that sounds like a good reason not to like him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Old Grouch uh, says, Because I don't suffer fools on climate catastrophe well, Add together the technology will save us and the Jesus is on my side and (laughs) nuclear power will save us crowd and that's just about everyone. Additionally, everyone thinks I'm a pedophile because I love Greta Thunberg. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
Ugh, it got real fast. Yeah, I didn't like that. No. Then I took a, a I was lot nodding of along, and then uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Keith T says, "I don't know, but I wish someone would tell me." <laughs> Titan and Stewart says, "Because I keep telling them we need to abolish the family." <laughs> <laughs> Always great at the Thanksgiving family dinner. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mark C uh, responds, "What's to like?" Yeah. Well, Yario Yairo M responds, "Probably because my lack of an outgoing, sunny disposition and my ever readiness to challenge wild, widely held, mostly reactionary narratives." Yeah, that's uh, a good reason. Paul K says, "Because I correct their grammar." <laughs> uh, Tim, just Tim, says, "I'm sure they have their reasons." But I bet they're not half as good as added as I am. Yes. Uh, very insightful. Very just insightful, Tim. Just Tim. Uh, Andrew M says, "Why don't people like me?" What? And there's <laughs> an emoji with some glasses on. Uh, no idea. People didn't like. <laughs> uh, Jeffy says. I don't remember, man, but I wish they would get over it. I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been my answer to this week's question. Yeah, that's always my answer. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, we have uh, confirmed some crucial uh, Patreon or patron information. Lily Drippy DDS says, I'm a dentist. Hey! So now we know. Oh, so glad resolved. to find out that he's a dentist and that DDS didn't stand for something else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, and over on uh, Discord, um, Sound Pets says, because I don't like them. <laughs> While Scott Alt-Delete says, the reason most people don't like me is that I've met only a small proportion of the Earth's population. Oh, I see. I like oh, that. That's very good. By process of elimination, uh-huh. I like that. Uh, Kim G says, I think it's because I'm too indecisive. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe not. I'm not sure. <laughs> Perhaps. No, I'll say yes. Or no. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> very good, Kim. Kim does a great job yeah. of uh, sending a answer to the question from Any more on Discord? Uh, yeah, we got Meister Chops says my tamper-proof packaging. <laughs> <laughs> and then Crim, Crim DR 2019 says, people not like me because I'm always correcting grammar. Speaking of, isn't it why, isn't it why do people not like you? I mean, I guess it's better than ending your question with a preposition. <laughs> All right. All right. Is that it for Discord? Uh, looks that way. All right. So we'll get to Facebook and Twitter. After Jeff Dorch of the Moment of Truth, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, when's your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want? You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or right now you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth, which is coming up. We'll have more of your answers to the question from hell, again, following Jeff in the moment of truth. Coming up, what I just tell you? Jeff in the moment of truth. Plus, this week in rotten history, Will has the rest of your answers to the question from hell. We will be deciding this week's winner. We'll also have real live mail to share. Will reveals what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. And like I promised at the beginning of today's show, despite enjoying an idyllic time with family and nature last weekend, I was still reminded 
that this is hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And Will, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The three-ring vicious circus. There's a vicious circle or cycle eating its own tail in the West. Here's the mechanism. People protest, civilly disobey, subvert, argue, and generally struggle against a status quo that oppresses them. The status quo reacts, overcorrects to prevent not just the change, but even the possibility to struggle for change. The resistance has to rebuild, refashion its tools, which you can hear in the background, explore new options for struggle. By the time they've almost clawed their way back to their former visibility and power, the status quo has reiterated so many outrageous lies against the resistors' counterarguments that it forces them to reframe the discourse. But eventually, even the reframing starts to suffer from the law of diminishing returns. Meanwhile, the status quo has pounded home the argument that everyone's sick of the resistance and weaponizes whatever public opinion they can along those lines. This makes the resistance fight harder, resort to more rigidly doctrinaire arguments, harsher tactics, ad absurdum, which the status quo in its turn uses to further discredit them in the zeitgeist. By this time, though, the status quo is divided into two sides, one side blandly ineffectual representatives of the resistors funded by the blandly ineffectual reasonable rich who water down the true resistance's arguments aims and strategies and on the other side funded by openly undemocratic wealth hoarders and corporations the ferocious and exciting cutting-edge super cool bad boy violent authoritarians who take discrediting of the resistance to utterly insane lengths for the loves and money. They accuse their enemies of the most sexually perverse varieties of violence in order to justify the violence they themselves want to use to extinguish them. Maybe the violence turns into war, or maybe it subsides for a time, though the root problems don't get fixed or get half-fixed at best, keeping hostilities kindled. We're at a moment where everybody's just damn fed up with each other. Those in various groups on the left are fed up because they can't believe they have to fight the same battles all over again. They shriek louder and fight harder because they want to make sure once and for all their grandchildren don't also have to fight the same battles all over again. Groups on the right are fed up because they thought they'd assassinated enough left leaders and slaughtered enough followers of the left that the left was finally dead. They've had to pretend for decades that they were okay, graciously refraining from a repeat of the assassination and slaughter. Interestingly, these days, no new left leaders on the revolutionary end have stepped up to the pulpit. Evidently, the assassinations were enough to warn away any would-be leaders. Possibly, though, 
The people have chosen not to sacrifice their best and bravest spokespeople to the spectacle this time around. So the violent right has no choice but to take out their hatred on innocent noncombatants they delusionally see as soldiers in an army the right itself has rendered leaderless. The left's anger at the police stems from the recognition that cops maintain the status quo by protecting the rulers from the aggrieved masses. The rulers are either corrupt and evil by choice or are situationally trapped, reluctantly acting out repetitive injustice in an unjust gilded hamster habitat. These wealth hamsters, situationally trapped, strive to be generous and good and have grown annoyed at being called out for their privilege. They begin to repeat the right's arguments about the left's rhetorical and tactical overreach. The more vehement the left feels its arguments and strategies have to be in response, the more vituperatively these well-meaning, situationally trapped, wealthy souls argue to have their goodness recognized as distinct from and mitigating of the unjust roles they are sort of forced to play. And the more vehement the left's arguments and strategies, the more violent and conspiratorial, the more the violent and conspiratorial rights outrageous arguments are viewed as valid and acceptable by the well-meaning rich. So we're really spinning three vicious circles in the air right now. One, the circle where the highfalutin employ violence and threats of violence using cops and vigilantes against the hoi polloi who must up their diatribes, threats, and demands in response. Two, the circle where highfalutin academics, artists, philanthropists, and art and fashion consumers are engaged in a war of rhetoric against subversive intellectuals, underpaid creatives, the middle to lowbrow consumer and investigative journalists in a feedback loop of ever crescendoing internecine bourgeois antagonisms and three, the circle where in the middle, the people simply trying to survive and live pleasantly are pulled and pushed and battered and threatened by lies and less frequently uncomfortable truths from the extreme points of view they feel surround them, which feeds an increase in mainstream paranoia and corresponding violent outbursts. Violent outbursts. Throw in guns and broadcast it to the rest of the world in a 24-hour infotainment cycle, and you've got the three-ring circus known as the USA. Back in the days when the Roman Empire was getting ready to fall, the populace was placated with what we call today in English bread and circuses. And it's fair to posit that the more spectacularly violent and frequent the circuses were, the lower the quality and the less abundant the bread needed to be. Think of the USA as a 24-hour, worldwide, streaming-on-demand gladiatorial arena, the Colosseum of post-modernity, if you will. In social democracies in Europe and the UK, which I guess isn't Europe anymore, if it ever really was, the bread comprises popular rights and services, which are currently being chipped away even as the USA becomes more performatively violent and nakedly insane. The bread diminishes in abundance and quality, while the circus increases in thrills and kills. We thought we were done with Henry Ford, the fascist Führer, ringmaster of industry, when his military flagship, the Third Reich, shot itself in the head in a Berlin bunker. But now has arisen Elmo Scum, the apartheid beneficiary of an emerald city, leaning into full neo-Nazi messaging. 
We have the megalomaniacal authoritarian crusher of thought, Peter Thiel, and assorted other astronomically wealthy citizens cane, dancing their buck in right wing and hoof in mouth choreography in the spotlight. And no one wants to work. Why? Because the only jobs left at the circus for the vast majority of us is cleaning up after the animals. Yes, for peanuts. Thank you for that. You're very witty. Following donkeys and elephants around with shovels is not an attractive option. Even if employment in the heart, even if it is employment in the heart of the spectacle. Or alternatively, maybe we've all become norm from Cheers. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Every time I hear the words Three Ring Circus, I immediately think of my favorite Mexican restaurant in the neighborhood, how it was absolutely delicious until the restaurant inspectors went in and in their report, as it was published in the Chicago Tribune, they referred to it as a Three Ring Circus of Pestilence. Wow! That is so mean! It's really mean. And then uh, both myself and pete the owner of carrie's lounge downstairs we really really love that place and i still do it's reopened but when it reopened pete was waiting for it to reopen at 11 in the morning so the three ring circus of pestilence he couldn't wait to see and i was like so how is it and he's like not as good as it used to be oh well they probably didn't have the flea circus part of the circus anymore. Well, it was also, you know, the certain flavoring and the guacamole from things landing in it. Well, you know, they did, you know, um, the guacamole in mole, uh, frequent ingredient is, uh, I don't know how you spell it, how you pronounce it, chupalin, chupalin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the, the word you're uh, talking about. The crickets. Yeah. So that's yeah, not so, bad. I mean, no, I was, I was getting additional that. protein. I don't think I was eating crickets. I think I was eating something mm-hmm. else. I mean, and they are, you know, they're related to locusts, which are pests See. in the Bible. They are, when you hear pestilence, they usually mean locusts. <laughs> Means locusts. You know, or, or salesmen. I've, no. never, I've never really had a problem with locusts, <laughs> to be honest with you. Or, you know, robocalls. They didn't, you know, it was either locusts or robocalls. Well, I, know. I enjoyed me. your uh, moment of truth today, sir. Did you actually hear it, or were you in the John? I wasn't in the John. I was doing a million other things, but I was listening to it at the same time. So I'm having a big issue with the printer here right now. I got to tell you something, man. I, it was completely silent for about half an hour until I came on. And then suddenly they got really loud and yelly and banging. And, and Oh, you uh, mean the people I mean, outside your place right yeah, now? Yes. This, you know, which... Is the it's the circus. A lot of the noise was a uh, a <laughs> farting contest at the circus, really? and if it sounded like power drills or power tools, it's because these people are pros. You know, when I was uh, bird watching this weekend, I saw a redheaded farter. It's one of those weird birds you see in southwestern Michigan. Really? Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> it was very exciting. I like that. Well, <laughs> Chuck, I, I I wanted to say something. Yes, sir. That I really think that we can hear on no other broadcast <laughs> what's that is you pronouncing roots 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 i know i love it i know i mean it my 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 uncle and aunt used to say roots uh, so i i was trying to say roots in the past and but now i just went back to roots because i've decided just that there's certain do parts what of my, you do man there's certain parts of my accent that i just kind of like 
Going back to your roots. No, going back to my roots. Going back to your roots. There's something. There's just something so you know. I you don't hear it on broadcast news because they they know better. No, they don't know better. (laughs) They just have their own. I mean, a lot of people say you know root and route. You never hear hear. Do you hear route on the? On the news, years you hear root like Route sixty six. I used to also say settlers, but I've changed that to settlers. But there's no e in there. But I do say no, com- I do say comfortable correctly, unlike most people. Just like I say what? February Wednesday, all correctly. February and 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 Wednesday. We- you say Wednesday. <laughs> just to wow. an- just to annoy Canadians. I, I That's it. amazing. <laughs> now, you know what? Uh, um, do you say temperament? No, I don't. <laughs> you remember? Uh, what was it? Ah, uh, dang! Oh, nu- I, nuclear. People, people who know, who should know better, still say nuclear, even though it's nuclear. Yeah, I knew people who were really upset with uh, President George W. Bush because he said nuclear when these people were the same people who were always saying nuclear and similar to me. So <laughs> Jimmy Carter used to say nuclear and he was a nuclear scientist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not a very good one apparently, but he was a good one. He was. Well, they always kept handing him the nuclear stuff exactly. instead of the nuclear stuff. Exactly. Oh. All right, Jeffy. Yeah. Until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell, and oddly, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. May 22nd, 1856, 167 years ago this week, U.S. Senator Charles Schumer, a Republican from Massachusetts, was at his desk in the Senate chamber making notes and written copies of a speech he had delivered there just two days earlier. Senator Sumner was an abolitionist, and in the speech, he had denounced the possibility of expanding slavery into new western states. Again, this is in 1856, only four years before the U.S. Civil War. Sumner had singled out two of his fellow senators for special criticism. One was Stephen Douglas, an Illinois Democrat, who told a colleague that in making that speech against expanding slavery westward, Sumner was going to get himself shot. I don't know if Senator Douglas was concerned about Senator Sumner's safety or if he was making a threat. The other senator that Sumner mentioned was also a Democrat, Senator Andrew Butler of South Carolina, a strong defender of slavery to whom Sumner directed some very personal insults. And I wish those had been included in the record because I can't find them anywhere. As Sumner was going through the written text of his speech, which he intended to have mailed around the country, ballsy, he was suddenly approached by Congressman Preston Brooks, a South Carolina Democrat and a cousin of Senator Butler. Brooks solemnly announced that he had come to avenge the honor of his cousin and family. To Brooks, it was a dishonor to not only his cousin, but his entire family that a U.S. Senator would dare deliver a speech in opposition to expanding slavery. Now, that's some grade-A, 100% white supremacy snowflake right there, which likely means this will turn real ugly and real fast. With that, Brooks began beating on Sumner, see, I told you, with a cane made of 
Gutta percha, a hard plant-derived material that is used today by dentists for filling in root canals. As Sumner tried to protect himself by crawling under his desk, Brooks kept swinging the big cane, pounding on him until he was covered in blood and could not see. He beat Sumner so ferociously that he even managed to get put a cut on his own face, and his Gouda Percha cane broke into pieces, which his political allies then gathered up and saved as mementos. By the time Brooks was finally grabbed and subdued, Sumner was injured so badly that three years would pass before he could return to a seat in the Senate. The caning of Senator Sumner, which made headlines across the country, is sometimes cited today as one of the outstanding events foreshadowing the U.S. Civil War. But Yale historian Joanne Freeman reports that it was only one of at least 80 violent incidents among senators and congressmen that took place in the 30 years leading up to the war. Who knew slave owners could be such dicks? Oh yeah, everybody. The fights happened both inside the Capitol building and on the streets, and involved not only fists and canes, but sometimes even knives and guns, all of which could be coming to a U.S. government near you if white supremacists have their way again. And let's make that white Christian supremacists. Also in Rotten History on May 27, 1923, 100 years ago this week, in a small town in the German state of Bavaria, school teacher, teacher named Louis Kissinger and his wife Paula became the proud parents of a little boy they named Heinz. Whew, I thought it was going to be Henry Kissinger there for a second. Who within a few years would become an avid soccer player and a good student in school. Fifteen years later, the Christians who... <laughs> The Kissingers, who were Jewish, would emigrate to the United States to escape Nazism, as was the custom at the time. Heinz would change his name to Henry, as the, was the custom at the time, and served in the U.S. Army, graduated from Harvard University, eventually became National Security Advisor and Secretary of State under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Who could have foreseen that one day that little Heinz would grow up to oversee U.S. support of a fascist coup d'etat in Chile, genocidal war in Bangladesh, an assassination attempt in Cyprus, as well as illicit approval of an Indonesian invasion in East Timor, not to mention the U.S. bombing of Cambodia, which expanded the Vietnam War into that country and helped create the conditions for takeover by the dictator Pol Pot and the murderous Khmer Rouge. And that invasion in East Timor ended up being a genocide. And who would have guessed that grown-up Henry, architect of the death, deaths of millions, not only would be rewarded for his efforts with the Nobel Peace Prize, but would live to reach the age of 100 this very week. It only shows not for the first time that the Pope, <laughs> pop culture notion of karma which derives from a more serious Hindu concept poorly understood by most Westerners, is just a pant load of wishful thinking BS. So I wasn't exactly certain what Rinaldo Magaldi meant by karma being a more serious Hindu concept. Rinaldo writes this week in Rotten History, I just add the snarky lines like, as was the custom at the time. And that's all I added to this particular Rotten History on Henry Kissinger because I thought this Rotten History was particularly brilliant. 
Thank you as always, Ronaldo. But I did very little research into karma online because I was exhausted over the weekend. But I found this at some site called sciencedirect.com, which sounds like a place where you buy science directly from a warehouse. Karma is believed to be a source of supernatural justice through which actions lead to morally congruent outcomes within and across lifetimes. It is a central tenet of many world religions and appears in the social evaluations expressed by religious and non-religious individuals across diverse cultural contexts. So good news then about Henry Kissinger. The rest of his lifetimes are going to really, really suck. Now that's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Will, please remind us one last time what this week's question from hell is and tell us how all of our listeners are responding on Facebook and Twitter and anywhere else the answers are lingering. This week's question from hell is, why don't people like you? And the lone response on Twitter from Matt H. is, it's really none of my business. (laughs) Which is good. (laughs) That's pretty good. Um, On Facebook, uh, Warren L., Responds, my sparkling personality. What's it to you? <laughs> Ezel S says, um, if you check, I think you'll find out that they do. No. Oh. Oh, that's very nice of you, um, SLS. Will A says, uh, because I'm a commie in America. <laughs> Riley D says, I'm too liberal with my pocket sand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Old timey fighting references. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Um, this is in a script I don't understand. Oh, uh, yeah. It's uh, somebody by the name of Mora. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. Japanese, I think. Okay. Uh, well, they say, I smell of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Roy O. Ray O. says, I hate the American dream. <laughs> Kelly right. H. says, because F you, a-hole. <laughs> nice. Nick A. says... I've never given them a reason to do something as outrageous as that. <laughs> Borky B says, that smell, ellipses. And Andy W says, I'm likable enough. <laughs> Ronaldo Magaldi says, far too many reasons to say. <laughs> Fabio L says, because I keep bringing up the silent coup, and they don't want to be reminded that this is hell. There you go. John, John T says... I'm a critunculus schnook, and I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what it is. I think and, it's a made-up word. And then finally, Justin M. replies, because I'm too sexy for capitalism. <laughs> oh, Justin M., too sexy for yeah. capitalism. kind of like that. Let me write that yeah, one down. Justin M., too sexy that, for capitalism. Yes, sir? That belongs in a T-shirt or something. <laughs> too sexy for capitalism? Yeah. Uh, I saw a T-shirt for sale. Uh, this weekend that had huge like 1960s flowery lettering it Mm -hmm. said uh, self-love club huh and I thought narcissist or chronic masturbator yeah which one are you and is that the kind of thing column A little column B maybe (laughs) exactly is that the kind of thing you want people to know about also why not just get the t-shirt that says chronic masturbator exactly Cut to the chase already. Exactly. Put it in those dots where colorblind people can't see it, <laughs> just to irritate people like me. Did I tell you that? I was walking down the street one time, and my girlfriend said, hey, can you see the word and the dots on that guy's shirt over there? Uh-huh. And I said, no, I can't, because I'm colorblind. And I was like, what does it say? And she goes, I'll tell you in a couple of blocks, because I want you to get a little bit away from this guy. Okay. And I was like, so what's the T-shirt say? 
and you know it's to test your colorblindness right uh-huh. in the dots it said colorblind people suck <laughs> whoa who trolls the colorblind i don't know that is me <laughs> but me. for a, a second i was angry and then i just started laughing and she was yeah. like yeah that's kind of i was worried about that first second of you being angry. and then oh that's actually very clever <laughs> i like that exactly yeah. it's really it's good such a specific targeted <laughs> troll <laughs> i know it what is. are the odds that he's gonna come across come across somebody who's it. totally yeah. colorblind who can't see any color whatsoever so it's bound to work yeah. all right so the answers i like the most were and will you tell me which ones you like mm-hmm. kelly H saying F U A hole. It's great, but he just recently won. John, uh, Justin M saying too sexy for capitalism. Keith T, I don't know, but I wish someone would tell me. Uh, let's see. Mark C, what's to like? Paul K, because I correct their grammar. Uh, let's see. Uh, Nick E saying unrelenting bitter pessimism. Essential saying that's just their special way of expressing their dependency issues. Uh, let's see, uh, little drippy DDS saying I'm a dentist. <laughs> Bruce S saying depends, because I don't know if that's the underwear. Yeah. Or, uh, Neil C can't remember faces, can't remember places. Uh, Meister Chop saying my tamper-proof packaging. <laughs> Uh, Matt Hayes saying it's really none of my business. Uh, Ray O saying I hate the American dream. Anything really stick out to you? I mean, I liked tamper-proof packaging a lot, but I think what takes the cake for me is too sexy for capitalism. Too sexy for capitalism is good. Too liberal with too my liberal pocket with sand. My pocket sand was really <laughs> good because I'm a commie in America. That smell. That smell. <laughs> Yeah, let's go with Justin M. I did really like that. Justin, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Way to go, Justin. You are the winner because your answer for why people don't like you is you are too sexy for capitalism. I would like to have some evidence of that, if you don't mind, Justin M., but congratulations. You are the winner. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get it into the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, why don't people like you, as in me, first, I wish more people didn't like me because that might be good for the bottom line of the show. Second, I'm not crazy about myself, so I know plenty of reasons more people should not like me. And like everybody, those reasons people should not like me are what are known as guilty pleasures. And that's what I'll be talking about all of that on this week's Patreon podcast, why people don't like me. And I think it's because of my guilty pleasures that they don't know about. But once they do, they won't like me. At least, I know, I'm not too crazy about me. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. So we got an, uh, we got mail, like actual mail, sent through the post office. Mail sent to, this is hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. David, who recently passed through Chicago twice, once on his way out west from Jackson, Mississippi, out to Seattle, and then again on his way back, both times hanging out with us during This Is Hell office hours, which happen this and every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. until about 10, downstairs in the bar known as Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S, again at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Drop by, have a drink, get a book, join me in the beer garden, and you never know who you will meet. For instance, Had you recently hung out with us, you would have met David from Jackson, who not only gave us an amazing eyewitness perspective and report on what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, that was just 
just stunning. Well, he sent us a uh, this is a postcard with a this is hell sticker on it, and it's got this really creepy manga-like comic drawing of an angry dude holding a woman's face as he says, "This is hell." So David writes, Chuck, Pete, that's the owner of Carrie's, this is Hell and Carrie's Lounge, my newfound friends. Thank you all for your warm welcome. I made a Cubs game, went to Graziano's for Italian food, and visited the University of Chicago. In total, I spent 7,292 miles, 7,292 miles, 20 states. But the time spent in Chicago was the top of the list. Visiting again soon, David. David, we really hope to see you at our annual This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, which will take place at Carrie's on Saturday, July 22nd, with live music and art opening of the This Is Art Art Show, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and as always, there will be food. Listeners, if you are a musical performer or are in a band or know of a musical act that would be great for our party, please send your contact information and a a sample of your music or that of your suggested musical performer or performers. Or if you are an artist or know an artist who would be a perfect fit for a show called This Is Art, which is put on by a show called This Is Hell, Send us your information and a sample of your work or that of an artist you would like to suggest. Finally, if you would like to donate something that would be a match made in heaven for a raffle put on by This Is Hell, tell us what it is by emailing chuck at thisishell.com. We already have two very appropriate games donated to us. One is called Class Struggle, and the other is Space Cats Fight Fascism. We also got a copy of uh, Portland, Maine's alternative magazine, The Bollard in the Mail, as we regularly are sent it, and The Mainer by the good people of Portland, Maine. But this time there was a letter uh, inside which reads, Hi Chuck, Chris here from The Bollard over in Portland, Maine. I'm writing to suggest a guest, Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th Century Woman, who brought me back to life. Published this month by Harper Wave and reviewed in our May issue, which is enclosed. London, as she's known to friends like myself and comrade Dan Colbert, who was recently on This Is Hell to talk about his book, Pretty Good House, has written a stunningly powerful memoir about her struggles with chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity, and the medical establishment that's long misunderstood, misdiagnosed, and marginalized those suffering from those afflictions. She spent decades researching the causes of these illnesses and discovered their connections to toxic chemicals and household products and furnishings, childhood trauma, and the constant stress of life under industrial capitalism. London brilliantly, brilliantly explains how those suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome and multiple chemical sensitivity are the proverbial canaries in a coal mine whose debilitating conditions are a warning to all of us that our society is poisoning itself. And a friend of mine, uh, unfortunately, succumbed to both of these, so this I find this very interesting. There is more information about London and her book at JenniferLondon, L-U-N-D-E-N.com. Thanks, as always, for your subversive and enlightening program. We're raking the beaches, growing the weed, brewing the beer, and warming the ocean in eager anticipation of your next vacation visit to the Pine Tree State of Maine. In solidarity, Chris Busby, 
editor and publisher, The Ballard. Thanks for the guest suggestion, Chris, and expect an email from us shortly because we would love to have London on the show. And we love our listeners in both the Portlands, Maine, and Oregon. And I always find it fascinating how we have so many listeners in both Portlands, yet we're still not on the radio in either places. Will, who do we have as our scheduled guests for next week's shows? Next week, we have former editor at The Atlantic, Benjamin Schwartz, and national security and international affairs scholar, Christopher Lane, who will be on to discuss their June Harper's cover story, Why Are We in Ukraine? on the dangers of American hubris. It's kind of funny, This the war started back in February of 2022. I got ill right at about that time. By the time we came back in May of 2022, I still had not really read anything that I liked when it came to Ukraine. It's June 2023. I finally read an article that I liked about Ukraine. Yeah. It only took about 16 months for this thing to come around. So. Well, you have to let the yellow press do its thing for a while. Exactly, and you have to have them speculate and just oh, ramble on for a long time, you know. Openly, shamelessly speculate. And, uh, and just keep repeating what the government always says. In uh, it, just, This always just amazed me. This is a completely unprovoked war. Is, is that even a possibility that there's a war that's completely unprovoked? provoked that none of the actions up until that point of time mm-hmm. led to that war that all of a sudden somebody just said let's just go to war yeah let's just have a war i just don't think you that any what? dude can anything be unprovoked in your own relationship with your wife probably no. not no everything's provoked that's a rich rich text there i know all right so who else is going to be on next week's show oh, we have listener favorite historian gerald horn who returns to talk about his new book Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. Thank you so much to Gerald for reaching out. I knew that that book was going to be coming out soon. I didn't mm-hmm. realize it was this soon. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, he's really, he's always awesome. As always, we will have more of what you are telling us and This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, as well as another moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Huge thank you to producer Will Ippen. Thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian Vupper, and to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because. And special shout out to both Dan Kugler and Kat Jarvanen. Uh, we hope you are both doing well, and we look forward to having you back in here on the show with us soon. So, like I said at the beginning of the show, I had a lovely long four day weekend hanging out with family last weekend, which is something I needed as I am quickly approaching an upcoming surgery that will finally end my year-long, life-threatening medical ordeal. So I spent time with family in southwest Michigan, hiking in the forest and walking over the dunes to Lake Michigan. We also ate really good food. I had a wide variety of good Michigan microbrews, craft beer I have tried uh, that I haven't tried before. I got really great local legal weed. I actually sent my nephew out to buy it because I don't have a legal ID. <laughs> yeah, I'm a really good uncle. I send my nephew to go score weed for me uh there was a hot tub we had access to a huge private yard with a fire pit it was enough to forget that this is hell that is until i did what i always do when on even the shortest vacation and that is read the local paper and in this case it's the holland sentinel from the nearby town of holland michigan which is famous for its tulip festival windmills and apparently Dutch cliches. The Sentinel reports, quote, 
Two customers in separate incidents threatened employees at a Holland area Taco Bell, the, Ho the Holland Sentinel reports. The first incident happened after midnight when a man in the drive-thru became upset. The fast food restaurant on River Avenue near Douglas Avenue doesn't offer Sprite, the Holland Sentinel said. According to police reports obtained by the Sentinel, the man broke the drive-thru window by punching it because Taco Bell didn't have Sprite then acted as if he was holding a gun, then drove to the front of the store and hit the glass of the doors. Again. Because Taco Bell didn't have Sprite. I mean, how privileged is this guy? He then drove off and led an Ottawa County Sheriff's Office deputy on a chase, eventually stopping and getting out of his car, the Sentinel reports. The man still would not listen to deputies who warned him they could use a canine on him. The Sentinel reports the man allegedly saying, F you, send the dog, I'll fight it off and fight everyone here. He was eventually taken into custody after deputies used a taser on him multiple times, the Sentinel reports. The reports the man faces charges of damage to business property, operating while intoxicated flee and elude, resisting and obstructing, and habitual offender, fourth offense notice. News 8 is not, that's W-O-O-D-T-V, News 8 in Grand Rapids, is not naming him because he was not yet been arraigned. Around 3.20 p.m. that same day, another man visited the same Taco Bell after ordering. He was told he wasn't allowed at that Taco Bell due to issues that occurred in the past. As an employee worked on refunding him, he started making threats and yelling, the Sentinel says, citing police reports. Witnesses told police he took two card readers, credit card readers, off the counter, throwing one at an employee's head. This is in the midst of him getting a discount, or his refund, by the way and swinging the other one at a different employee. One witness said he hit her, or he bit her. He actually bit one of the witnesses, not a worker, just some random witness. It reports the man's sister, who came into the Taco Bell with him, and her two children said he was held down. The man, identified as Edward Galvin, has been charged with destruction of business property and three counts of assault, the Sentinel reports. The Sentinel reports was told multiple Taco Bell employees were fired, but he did not get a, re get a response from the company on the reasons for the firing. So, awful day for these uh, Taco Bell workers. First, they work at and for Taco Bell. Second, they prepare and serve Taco Bell food. Third, they then sell it to other people for actual human consumption. Finally, and the worst part, their livelihood depends upon the use of their precious time on earth. On top of all that, they have to put up with two total dicks in one day and get fired. That makes no sense. Until it was later reported that the second dick, who already had a history of being a dick at this very Taco Bell, with one report stating that there were four previous incidents with the, with the credit card reader, reader wielder, the second a-hole ordered food, 
paid for it. He was then told to leave before getting that refund because he had turned into such a dick during the refunding process. But the re workers refused, likely because, again, four-time a-hole who is yelling at them and insulting them. And again, as a possible four-time dick in the past, of course he attacked them with a credit card reader. It's not like that refund could have been for a lot of money. I mean, remember, this is all taking place at a freaking Taco Bell. And the whole thing is over the food they serve at Taco Bell. One of them is just over Sprite. And after that awful day, the workers who were twice attacked still got fired because they did not refund again a four-time dick who was hurling insults at them. Should they have been refunded the total tool? Sure. But none of this would have happened if Taco Bell simply did not exist. Taco Bell, thank you for always being a sobering reminder that this is hell. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I will reveal why people don't like me, why they should not like me, and why they shouldn't like me and a 20-year-old talk on the state of the global justice movement or whatever it was called back in 2003 with a guy whose new book was endorsed by Brian Eno. Go figure. For those of you listening on WNUR or Beware the Radio, enjoy our interviews from a year ago on Monopoly Medicine and the Homeless Industrial Security Com or Homeless Industrial Complex, the first on-air conversations we had since my return from life-saving surgery and a two-and-a-half-month recovery. There's only one way to get over all the problems that you have learned on this week's show, including Taco Bell. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>